Good morning. This morning we're continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Today, as you can see, doing verses 25 through 31. Um, I'll tell you up front that there are different terms and ideas in these verses that have been discussed and disputed and debated throughout church history. And there's some things maybe we don't totally understand because there were correspondence, correspondences between the Corinthians and Paul, and they had some ideas he's correcting. And I'll do my best to explain the passages and uh, also explain that I don't have answers that no one else has had either. But we can know what God's will is for us as we learn the Bible together. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, kindness. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for fellowship. Thank you for the work that you do in our hearts and our minds. And we ask your wisdom that we might live lives that are pleasing to you and live hoping and expecting your return as we live in this wicked world. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll begin with verse 25. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. So here already we have an interesting genre in which Paul, the apostle, is giving an opinion about a matter that came up in his correspondences with them, but he's not giving um, binding revelation. He's giving his opinion. And so what we know for sure is that this was Paul's opinion. And he'll give some caveats as we go along here. So let me explain what the issues are, what we know and what we don't know. Now concerning, I have that highlighted, Perry Day. That's important if you've been following Pastor Eric's teachings on eschatology. It's a key term in Matthew 24, 36. It helps us understand the Olivet Discourse. And it denotes a change of topics. Here is another topic, Perry Day. And that's used six times, 1 Corinthians, always as a change of topic. No command, as I say in my slide here, implies no binding revelation. But there are a lot of issues and questions that we can't totally answer. The first one is what he means by virgins. We may think that seems obvious, but uh, it was not, and there are many pages of scholarly discussion of this. I'll share a little bit with you. And the best conclusion I can think of as we look at all the material is this means someone who's not been married. And I'll, I'll give you the issues here. So uh, Dr. Gordon Fee says this about it. The view adopted here that's in his commentary, is that it was a term that the Corinthians used in referring to some 
young betrothed women who, along with their fiancés, were being pressured by the pneumatics who were now themselves wondering whether to go through with the marriage. Let me unpack that. If you've been with us, you've heard some of the other issues that have come up, 1 Corinthians 7. In verse 1, there's a slogan, which I believe the evidence points to, was their slogan. And that slogan was, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, this would be the uh, people who were persuaded that ordinary marriage was a lesser thing, and they would be better off if they were like angels in heaven or whatever. Paul corrects that. When he uses the term pneumatics, there is a phrase in that he uses about some of the false teachers in Corinth. They considered themselves the spiritual ones. Pneumatic would be spiritual, one who's characterized by being spiritual. So the pneumatic koi were the spiritual ones who had a higher spirituality than the ordinary Christians. And I'm so adamantly opposed to that, I've written several articles about it. There there are not extraordinary Christians versus ordinary Christians based on some higher-order experience. There are Christians, and there are the lost. Christians are those who have believed the gospel, are born of God, and are joined to the Lord, who have received the Holy Spirit, and they have various gifts, various degrees of maturity, and so on, but we receive one another in the Lord and not make judgments about who's greater and who's lesser. Now, we get that problem coming to the forefront already early in First Corinthians 1. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. They had judgments they were making about who's the better or more important Christian. So evidently, here we're reading between the lines, the pneumatics were suggesting that their slogan, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, would mean that those not married are in a better spiritual condition than those who marry. Paul isn't agreeing with them, but he's giving advice because at this time, as we will see, there evidently was some severe trauma going on in Corinth that made life difficult. Dr. Thistleton, whose commentary just on these verses, I printed out 11 pages, single-spaced, and he cites anything and everything that's ever been talked about. Was this the influence of Stoic philosophy? Was it the influence of the cynics, many of whom were against ordinary marriage and so on? And he finally comes to the conclusion that the term virgin means those who have not yet married. That seemed to be the best answer because it isn't as simple as we might think. Another commentary says this. Uh, they cite fee, and they come to no definite conclusion. Uh, let me cite Dr. Gardner, 
another commentary who, from a very solid scholar. And he summarizes what we've learned so far in Paul's discussion. Quote, all believers are to serve the Lord. If this can be better done when unmarried or when married, then that becomes a genuine criterion for decision-making. If a person is tempted to immoral behavior and marriage is the answer, then the decision is guided by vital biblical principles. Oh, this was before. In the end, Paul's saying, I have no command from the Lord. What we're commanded to do is serve God by faith, faithfully, whether it's married or unmarried. Now, the word opinion is used here in the text of verse 25. I give an opinion. That word is used a few times in the New Testament, and it means judgment or viewpoint. So Paul is sharing his opinion, but not binding revelation from the Lord, because he says, I have no command of the Lord. I think one thing that's of interest, at least to me, is that Paul knew what the Lord had objectively given to him to teach. He received his apostleship from the Lord himself. He received objective revelation from the Lord. We'll study that when we get to 1 Corinthians 15. Some of the things they're bringing up are things that he had objectively, not objectively received teaching from the Lord himself, who appeared to Paul numerous times. So therefore, he has nothing but an opinion to offer. And even as though he's a trustworthy person, his opinion isn't, a bi- isn't binding. I think it's instructive, and we should be circumspect about this. It's amazing to me that if someone who was an apostle would demur from making his own opinion binding, why is it that we have so many lawgivers nowadays who are more than happy to make their opinion binding on everybody? We've got thousands and thousands of lawgivers in church history who are saying things they didn't get from the Lord because it's not in Scripture alone and making their opinion binding. So I would say, at the very least, don't listen to them. If the true apostle doesn't make his opinion binding, the NAR teachers and other uh, people out there who claim they have revelations from God, if it's not according to Scripture, don't listen. It's not binding. Let's go to verse 26. So here's his opinion. I think, then, that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, here is another factor that's caused a lot of discussion. It's not entirely clear that this particular time in history that the city of Corinth was under a severe distress, but it may very well have been. If it was a severe distress, which he says, likely something like a famine or some sort of turmoil. And at this time of distress, it was good for a man to remain as he is. In other words, 
don't make major changes. So some think that this present distress is simply the church age. But it seems to me that that would not fit because Paul elsewhere has taught a very high view of marriage as in Ephesians, a type of Christ in the church. The marriage, and I'll cite something about that uh, here in my notes, was affirmed as from God and ordained by God. However, we can also see that in our experience or within history, when something very, very horrible is happening, people often back off of making major decisions, whether it's world wars, Great Depression, famines or whatever, they back away from it. And they uh, make these big decisions about whether to get a college education or to get married or whatever. And so likely, here's the scenario. And I have that on my uh, slide here. The last days begin at Pentecost, and they go to the very beginning of Daniel's 70th week, which lasts seven years. During this age that we're in, often called the church age, there's always the last days, always trials, always difficulties, always persecution against the gospel. But within that time frame, there are particularly difficult times that have arisen, as we've seen if you're a student of history. Horrible things happen, horrible famines, persecutions, wars that create at least localized, sometimes almost entirely worldwide, stress. So the last days cover the church age, but there are severe situations. Perhaps, and probably likely, that was going on in Corinth. So here's the statement I wrote about this. Paul taught a high view of marriage in such places as Ephesians 5. Here he is dealing with a difficult situation, which is made more difficult by false ideas held by some in the Corinthian church, such as their slogan in 7.1. We're not sure what the present crisis was, but it influenced Paul's advice to them. A local crisis does not change the fact that the entire church age is the last days and is characterized by difficult times. Even at that, Paul is not giving a command from the Lord, but his opinion. Kind of a unique literary genre in the New Testament where Paul gives an opinion, but it's not binding. Let's go to verses 27 through 28. Marriage advice, I, I gave as the title of the slide here, in a time of trial. Marriage advice in a time of trial. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry... You have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. 
probably not good right now for any spouse to say amen loudly. <laughs> Somebody may be offended at that. Now, um, let's look at the issues here. Binding and loosing, which are, are terms for forbidding and permitting, are not usually applied in this sort of context about marriage. Deo and luo. Uh, binding and loosing are terms of being under obligation or released from obligation. In both cases here, we have do not seek and do not seek. They're imperative in the Greek. However, Paul makes it clear this is not about sin, which binding and loosing typically are. If you're bound to not lie or to not blaspheme or to not steal, then it's a sin if you do it. If you're loose, that's permitted. That's binding and loosing. So it's unusual terminology, which gives rise to an awful lot of discussion by various scholars. And the other issue would be, this is obviously something about less than already married. You don't just say, okay, now I'm not married. So probably about betrothal. In that day, a betrothal was a uh, very serious commitment, and the breaking off of such a betrothal would be hugely significant. So I think the best readings is probably about betrothal. So if that's the case, okay, you're betrothed, don't seek release from that. And if you're not betrothed to someone, you don't need to seek a wife. But if you do, if you marry, it's not a sin. Let me, I'm telling you, this is very interesting. I don't think anyone who's not preaching verse by verse through the Bible chooses these verses for their sermon. So um, it's here. We'll learn what we can, the best we can. I think the Lord helped me find a, a very helpful application we can all relate to. Dr. Fee says this, this is such a remarkable word from a Jewish man in whose culture marriage was not only normal, but in some cases viewed as next to obligatory, obligatory, that one must ask, how is it possible for Paul to even have thought of using such language in the first place? continuing citing Gordon Fee. The best answer, of course, is that it reflects the Corinthian view, which was either specifically suggesting that marriage might be sin, remember, 7-1, good for a man not to touch a woman, their slogan, which Paul disagrees with, or at least modifies, um, or else implying, says Fee, it by the obligatory way they were pressing their ascetic slogans. Thus, this is no grudging condescension to marriage on Paul's part. <clears throat> Paul believes in marriage. He affirms marriage. He has a high view of marriage. We saw that when I was preaching through Ephesians in chapter 5. And so here we have 
pastoral advice, this is my comment, in a very difficult time of trouble, that it might be better to now make such a change at this point in life because of the troubles that are already there. Fee continues, that the married will have troubles in this life is for Paul a matter of sober reality, almost certainly as a result of the present crisis distress. Severe distress, severe crisis. Suppose you're living in a time where you wonder if you'll be able to find food. If you wonder if you're going to be able to live where people are being hauled off to war or harmed in, in some way or another. There may be a time not to make such a decision. <clears throat> Dr. Gardner explains betrothal, quote, in this context, marriage and singleness are once again relativized. Paul refuses, says Gardner, to accept what seems to have been the Corinthian view that singleness or abstinence is more spiritual. Rather, singleness or marriage are both about following the Lord obediently. And I agree with that, by the way. Gardner, some will be married, some not. But given the present distress, Paul makes his point, and then he talks about the binding and loosing. Gardner continues, the words bound and released, uh, released as looses, in the sense of being loose from a binding contract are not the usual words for marriage and divorce. Thus, this is difficult, probably about an engagement, we would call it, or betrothal. Now, in our world, people are engaged, call off the engagement. It's a little bit difficult, sometimes hugely difficult, but it's not as momentous as betrothal being called off. Because sometimes the marriages were arranged. Families had made decisions. And so it had been a very difficult thing in their world. We're going to go to verses 29 through 31. The applications today are going to be based on this section right here. Because it's something that will apply to all Christians throughout the church age. And it's something there is rarely uh, weighing heavily upon very many of us, and they really should. Christians in a temporal world, continuing, 29 through 31, but this, I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as those, though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Form, Greek word, schema, schema, where we get our word for scheme or schematic diagram. The form of this world passing away. Now, interestingly, I've mentioned this in Sunday school a couple times. As I'm doing the study on this and pages and pages material, including the Greek, and it's still difficult. Also been reading and about done with this book. 
that promotes post-millennialism without calling it that. Church, the institutional church throughout church history has been hugely deceived. It still is. The church is not an institution that's self-perpetuating. The church is a living organism attached to the head as the body of Christ. The gathered church are people who are born of God, who love God and one another, and we're here for each other, and it's comprised of all different types of people. And our status in the church is the same. We just have different roles and different needs and situations, but we're all members of the body of Christ. And there's no such thing as an unimportant Christian because we're all part of the body of Christ, and we always need one another. That being said, here I'm reading a book that's saying the role of the church is to be the intellectuals, the, the prominent ones, the movers and shakers, and we're going to influence society, and we're going to make a Christianized world that's better and better, and we need to get to it right away. We're going to do it through the ways one influences thinking and so on. And what Paul is writing here would be considered absurd to the post-millennialists. In fact, I can quote people who call any of us who believe this, and it's scripture that would apply to all of us, defeated Christians. We are called, brothers and sisters, by the hot shots, we're called defeated Christians. Why are we defeated? Because we long for the return of our blessed Lord. Because we're not satisfied with um, a wicked situation that grieves us day by day. And we realize that we live in a time of distress. And that even should we have the best of the best, wonderful families, great job opportunities, successful businesses, multiple friends. Everything, as I heard said, is downhill and with the wind. Some strange existence I haven't known. Uh, Even if that's all true, this still applies. Don't, Don't boast in how good you have it compared to somebody else. That's the point. If we have no longing for our Lord, if we think somehow there's going to be a kingdom on this earth with Jesus still in heaven, and it's going to be Christianity, we're deceived. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, those who are writing these things hardly ever do any biblical exegesis. It's absent. They throw out a proof text, paint a picture, and leave it at that. And that's what I'm going to deal with. Show me the evidence. Show me what the Bible teaches. Show me where you can incorporate the teachings of Jesus, not just cherry-picked ones, into your theology. They can't do it. They won't do it. Because they're important 
And we're not. We're just ordinary Christians who need the Lord Jesus. And we long for him. And we long for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, let me cite a couple scholars, and then we'll go to application. <clears throat> the time here, notice in the first line here, the time, ha kairos. Definite article, and kairos, which in this context means critical time or time of opportunity or the crucial time. Ha kairos, the time that this applies to, began at Pentecost and will come, go on until throughout the church age, until first Daniel 70th week, and then the Lord himself will reign for a thousand years on the earth. <laughs> Let me point out that the scholars in this matter see the important caveats. Dr. Gardner, he, talking about Paul, clearly does not suggest that people give up their regular life activities because of the imminence of Christ's coming. Nevertheless, what Paul writes about, the time is indeed driven by an eschatological, that means end time, frame of reference in which the Christ has come and will come. Paul works with a view of history that sees these two points in history as enclosing an age. First advent, church born on day Pentecost. Second advent, complex event, begins, I believe, with the rapture. And then uh, Dr. Gardner points out in 1 Corinthians 10 11, Paul speaks of us upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. Frankly, I can say this. If post-millennialism were true, that we're going to dominate the world and Christianize it without almost any, most people ever being converted, they'll just act Christian. And we're going to do all that and then invite Jesus back that we're going to Christianize the world and we're going to give dominion, take dominion and give that to Christ if he ever returns. That's absurd. It's so obviously absurd. How is it so many people believe it? But they do. The end of the age means we need to be about the work of preaching Christ and the gospel so those can escape from this present evil age and be part of the kingdom by being under the king and under his lordship. Gardner says the age that began with Christ's death, resurrection, and exaltation will come to an end at his coming. This time has been shortened, which may simply mean that it is short. However, the word can also mean shortened in the sense of limited. It doesn't go on forever. This is a temporary time we live in. It doesn't go on forever. Judgment is coming. Can you imagine writing a book about the calling of the church and not say one word about coming wrath? Not something to even be concerned about? In fact, pointing out the people like me who, not that I was mentioned, that are 
pointing out the need to flee from the wrath to come, have an escapist eschatology, and were probably defeated Christians. It's ridiculous, but that's what they say. Dr. Fee says the decisive event has already happened. In Christ's death and resurrection, God has already determined the course of things. The world in its present form, there's the word schema, has already been brought under God's judgment. And so decisive, says Fee, is that event that it has foreshortened the time. The result is that even now, what others are absorbed with, the followers of Christ, though using, is nonetheless free from in the sense of not being controlled by. All these things, marriage, celibacy, souring, rejoicing, buying, using, belong to the world in its present form. Ordinary and legitimate realities, these all are, says Fee, but not ultimately determinative as to how one lives as a Christ person in the world, to which I say, amen. How much I buy, how much I sell, whether I'm married or single, whether I have a lot or little, I still long for the return of Christ. None of us is so great that we don't long for Christ and that marriage supper of the Lamb. Now let's look at uh, a couple of applications. The first one will be a parable. We must live in light of the values of Christ rather than those of the world which is passing away. Secondly, we live in the last days and must make faith in Christ and his promises our highest priority. Our highest priority. Let's look at a parable. begins in Luke 14, 15 through 17. This is about a great banquet. Now, that may not mean a lot to us in the world we live in here at this time, but it was massive in the world that Jesus taught in. We see many parables about suppers and so on, including the one of the prodigal son that comes right after this in Luke 15, not soon after, not, not long after it. So let me read these verses and then set the stage and see what's going to happen and why it's pertinent to what we're learning, those who live in the world as if they were not using it. Here's what it says. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him, that's Jesus, heard this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, now here's the parable. A man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. Now, uh, I was blessed to see when I was looking up what resources I have that Kenneth Bailey covered this parable in great detail in his book, Through Peasant Eyes, one of his earlier books, Through Peasant Eyes. And let me uh, tell you what he said about this. Those invited would be important friends and associates. 
immediately points out that the earlier invitation had already been accepted. The messenger would go out when all was ready. Once the animal was slaughtered for the great feast, the dinner had to happen. The appropriate animal depended on the number of guests who had accepted the invitation. Bailey through pesticides. Now, he mentioned what that might be, whether it was a duck or a, or a you know, if it's really big one, it would be the fatted calf. That comes up in the prodigal son. Did you know they did not have refrigerators? Well, they didn't have that. So you kill the fatted calf, you better be ready to have a feast. And if you're going to have a really big event, which this would be, you send out the invitation ahead of time, find out the number of guests, they'd already accepted the invitation, and plan accordingly. And when the time came, the slaughter happens, this sort of event would happen only a few times. It would be a glorious thing, as laid out in the prodigal son, which will come in chapter 15. So this is very important. You don't just say, yes, I'll be there. I'm honored to be part of this. And then say, well, we'll see what happens. I don't think I want to go. We'll see. Come, everything's ready. So that's the after the fact, as they had already said they would come. Let's go to verses 18 through 20, Luke 14, 18 through 20. But they all alike began to make excuses. They already said they'd come. Now they're going to make an excuse. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. Now, if you've ever read Bailey, I hope some of you have, uh, in his book, he just shows the utter absurdity of these excuses, purposely so in the parable. This would be mocking the person who made the invitation because they are utterly impossible and absurd. For example, I bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. This does not happen in the Middle East. If you don't know about Kenneth E. Bailey, he spent his life as a missionary in the Middle East, and many of the customs still have not changed. No one would buy a piece of land without, it says Bailey, without knowing every detail of that land, like the back of his hand. Does it have water source? Are there trees on it? What's the soil like? What's the seasons? What are the seasons like? What will grow? What will not grow? No one will do that. That's like saying, I bought a house, but I haven't gone to see if there's a roof on it. I haven't checked whether a tree fell through it in the latest storm. I bought it. No, it's just you don't do that. How much less would that happen? They would know everything. And so to say, well, I haven't looked at it, but I bought a land, so I'm not going to go to your feast. They agreed to go to. That's insulting. That's saying to the person who was a prominent person in that their village to even have such a feast, nuts to you. I don't think you're worth it. That's what they were doing to Jesus when he came to die. That's what this parable is about. 
the king of the universe, the creator. God incarnate came, and they're offended because he dines with sinners. Isn't that amazing? And he's inviting all to the feast. They said they'd be part of the Messianic banquet. The leaders of Israel said, well, yeah, we want Messiah to come. We'll be important people. But they're going to bail. They're going to bail out. Bailey pointed out no one buys a single yoke of oxen, two oxen to plow together, without first making sure they work together and pull to the same force and speed to make the plow work correctly. They didn't have tractors. You figure out, when I was a kid, figure out the horsepower of the tractor, the number of blades you could have on your plow, and what the land is like, and whether the tractor would pull that kind of plow. But you got two oxen. One may be stronger than the other. One may go faster. And you put them in a yoke, well, where's the plow going to go? You want to see that working, that they pull together, they're the same strength, and the plow would go straight where you want it to. But... This guy's going to buy five of them. Now look at any of them. The, 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 invite, the person who will give the invitation is going, what? Nobody's going to buy five yoke of oxen and not know if they're even going to run together. It's absurd. It's outrageous. This is an affront. It's an insult. It's scorning the person who gave the invitation. And they're not going to come. Fatty calf's killed. No, I don't think I'll come. How about this one? Another said, I've married a wife. For that reason, I cannot come. Bailey has a whole bunch of material about marriage customs. And some of you have read that. It's very amazing. But you didn't just go get married. You didn't hop in the car, go down. Get married. Up, married now. This is a major deal as well. It's as absurd as the other ones. It couldn't happen that way. They're insulting the Lord who made the invitation. And as you know, this is about our invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's go to verses 21 and 22. Luke 14, 21, 22. And the slave came back, reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave slave said to said, Master, what you've commanded has been done. There's still room. Now, who were the poor, crippled, blind, and lame? Well, the ones who would, would not have been invited because they were the outcasts of the city. Many would consider them cursed. You see this in the Gospels. It's not without reason that already in Acts, the lame leap with joy. This is fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah. The blind see. God comes to the things that are not, calls them to himself in order to confound the things that are. God has chosen for this world to be rich in faith, to be heirs of the kingdom. Bailey says, 
Bailey says this, the host's anger is natural. He's been publicly insulted, but his response is grace, not vengeance. He turns to invite the outcasts of the village. These poor, maimed, blind, and lame are from the city. They are part of the community, though ostracized from the community life. No one, they were offended that Jesus was dining with sinners. So the parable is addressed to the important people who had only dined with other important people, but those ones bailed in this parable. Verses 23 and 24. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges. Now you're going outside of the city. And compel them to come in so my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. The leaders, the important people, the ones with high social standing, that were offended by Jesus, are not going to be part of the kingdom and the marriage supper of the Lamb because they were offended at the people who did come to Jesus. I wrote an article called Dining with the King. I think we had some copies of that out there, and it really lays this out. Dining with the King. Do you think about this? If someone was called to dine with a secretary of state or a president or a head of some, something important, that would be an honor. But can you imagine dining with the king of the universe? The king of kings and lord of lords? The very creator? That's what we're called, invited to, be part of the kingdom. Turn with me to Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. I'll read it to you if you don't have a Bible. <clears throat> but you may want to mark it out as something to keep in mind. <clears throat> Kennedy Bailey believes that this section of Isaiah, excuse me, the background to this parable. Because this is predicted. Isaiah 25, 6 or 9. The Lord of hosts, verse 6, will prepare prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Verse 7, on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. Verse 8, and he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from their all faces and will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's Yahweh. Verse 9. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Here we have, in the book of Isaiah, a beautiful background 
for the parable of the great, great banquet. The important, mighty people weren't interested. They bailed. They gave lame, invalid excuses. But in comes the lame, the blind, the crippled, the ones out on the hedges and highways that weren't even part of the city, part of the community, foreigners, people from afar who brought in. It's for all peoples. That's in Isaiah. I noticed as I was reading this, the terms get stronger. The first term used in the parable, invited. The second term, bring in, a little stronger. The third term, compel. Each case, it gets stronger. You're invited. No, I'm bringing you because the blind and lame and crippled wouldn't think that they have any place like that, but they're broad. Finally, the foreigners compelled, come in. Time is fulfilled. This is for you. Did you know that God saves unexpected people? That he's merciful? That we're in a crucial time? And that we don't know how much time we have before the Lord pours out his wrath? And we need to not just say yes, the invitation, but be compelled to turn to him during the crucial time. One last verse, or two verses actually, Mark 1, 14 and 15. And this uses the same idea, ha kairos, the crucial time. Jesus spoke this, and here's what it says, Mark 1, 14b and 15. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Amazing beginning part of Mark here. The time is fulfilled. I look it up in the Greek, the time, ha, ha kairos, which would mean the crucial time in history, the the opportune or necessary time. Here, Jesus on the scene of history calling for repentance. Fulfilled uh, is a perfect uh, passive verb of plerao, to be fulfilled. And so it's come to this point when Messiah is on history, at hand and gizo, drawn near. So from the first advent, which includes the virgin birth, the sinless life of Jesus, his miracles, his teachings, his prediction of his own death for sin and his own resurrection, his walking on water, his demonstrating that he had power over everything they feared, death, the storm at sea, demons, every kind of thing that anyone feared, Jesus had power over. And he came to die for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. He predicted not only his resurrection on the third day after he shed his blood for sins, but his ascension, he ascended to the right hand of God before many witnesses. And from Pentecost, so that's part of the first advent, 
Pentecost is the beginning of the church age. From then until the beginning of Daniel's 70th week is Hakairos. The time is staring us right in the face. Today is the crucial moment. Today is the day of salvation. We don't know how many more we have. We read in the news every day, someone's expected life to go on, it's gone. We need to be right with God. In the Greek, there's two imperatives. Repent is imperative. Believe is imperative. So this is the crucial time. And a lot of people say they want to be Christian because it's maybe looks good on in some circles on your resume. I go to a church or maybe it pleases your family. Yeah, I'll tell my family I'm a Christian. Oh, my relatives would be happy because I showed up at church like they wanted me to once a year or twice a year. Or I'm American. I guess that's close enough to being a Christian. Not. But the crucial moment is still there staring at us. Will we respond in faith and flee from the wrath to come? That's the gospel. There's no excuse. He sent all his messengers to the highway and byways, the hedges, compelled them to come in. Today, come in to the Messianic banquet. We have the foretaste when we celebrate communion, and we know that we will dine with the king at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your mercy, and for giving us reason to live thinking about your promises and our hope in you. And may our hearts not be weighed down by the worries of this life, but may we realize that what's going on here is important in as much as it determines what will be the case in eternity. May we serve you and love you and not be living for this present world, which is facing judgment. I pray that today, today would be the day of salvation for some who hear this message. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.